Chapter Eight of A Negro Explorer at the North Pole by Matthew A. Henson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight. Our heavy furs had been made by the Eskimo women on board the ship and had been thoroughly aired and carefully packed on the sledges. We were to discard our old clothes before leaving the land, and endeavor to be in the cleanest condition possible while contending with the ice, for we knew that we would get dirty enough without having the discomfort of vermin added. It is easy to become vermin-infested, and when all forms of life but man and dog seem to have disappeared, the bed-bug still remains. Each person had taken a good hot bath with plenty of soap and water before we left the ship, and we had given each other what we called a prize-fighter's haircut. We ran the clippers from forehead back, all over the head, and we looked like a precious bunch, but we had hair enough on our heads by the time we came back from our three months' journey, and we needed a few more baths and new clothes. When I met Dr. Goodsell at Cape Columbia, about a week after he had left the ship, he had already raised quite a beard, and as his hair was black and heavy, it made quite a change in his appearance. The effect of the long period of darkness had been to give his complexion a greenish-yellow tinge. My complexion reminded him of a ginger cake with too much saleratus in it. February 23. Heavy snowfall, but practically no wind this morning at seven o'clock, when Dr. Goodsell left his igloo for Cape Colon to pick up the load he had left there when he lightened his sledges, also some loads of pemmican and biscuits that had been cached. We had supper together and also breakfast this morning, and as we ate we laughed and talked, and I taught him a few tricks for keeping himself warm. In spite of the snow, which was still falling, I routed out my boys, and in the dark we left camp for the western side of the Cape, to get the four sledge-loads of rations that had been taken there the previous November. Got the loads and pushed south to Cape Aldrich, which is a point on the promontory of Cape Columbia. From Cape Aldrich the commander intends to attack the sea ice. After unloading the supplies on the point, we came back to camp at Cape Columbia. Shortly afterwards Captain Bartlett came into camp from his musk-ox hunt around Par Bay. He had not shot a thing and was very tired and discouraged, but I think he was glad to see me. He was so hungry that I gave him all the stew which he swallowed whole. Macmillan and his party showed up about an hour after the captain, and very shortly after George Borup came driving in like Ann Eliza Johnson a-swingin' down the line. I helped Mr. Borup build his igloo, for which he was grateful. He is a plucky young fellow, and is always cheerful. He told us that Professor Marvin, according to the schedule, had left the ship on the 20th, and the commander on the 21st, so they must be well on the way. While waiting in this camp for the commander and Professor Marvin to arrive, we had plenty of work, readjusting the sledge-loads, and also building snow-houses and banking them with blocks of snow, for the wind had eroded one end of my igloo and completely raised it to the level of the ground, and a more solidly constructed igloo was necessary to withstand the fury of the gale. We kept a fire going in one igloo and dried our mittens and comics though the tumpa-tumpa-plunk of the banjo was not heard, and our campfires were not scenes of revelry and joy, I frequently did the double shuffle and an old Virginia breakdown to keep my blood circulating. The hours preceding our advance from Cape Columbia were pleasantly spent, 
though we lost no time in literary debates. There were a few books along. Out on the ice of the polar ocean, as far as reading matter went, I think Dr. Goodsell had a very small set of Shakespeare, and I know that I had a holy Bible. The others who went out on the ice may have had reading matter with them, but they did not read it out loud, and so I am not in a position to say what their literary tastes were. Even on shipboard we had no pigskin library or five-foot shelf of sleep producers, but each member had some favorite books in his cabin, and they helped to form a circulating library. While we waited here we had time to appreciate the magnificent desolation about us. Even on the march, with loaded sledges and tugging dogs to engage attention, unconsciously one finds oneself with wits wool-gathering and eyes taking in the scene, and suddenly being brought back to the business of the hour by the fiend-like conduct of his team. There is an irresistible fascination about the regions of northernmost Grantland that is impossible for me to describe. Having no poetry in my soul, and being somewhat hardened by years of experience in that inhospitable country, words proper to give you an idea of its unique beauty do not come to mind. Imagine gorgeous bleakness, beautiful blankness. It never seems broad, bright day, even in the middle of June, and the sky has the different effects of the varying hours of morning and evening twilight from the first to the last peep of day. Early in February, at noon, a thin band of light appears far to the southward, heralding the approach of the sun, and daily the twilight lengthens until early in March the sun, a flaming disk in fiery crimson, shows his distorted image above the horizon. This distorted shape is due to the mirage caused by the cold, just as heat-waves above the rails on a railroad track distort the shape of objects beyond. The south sides of the lofty peaks have for days reflected the glory of the coming sun, and it does not require an artist to enjoy the unexampled splendor of the view. The snows covering the peaks show all of the colors, variations, and tones of the artist's palette, and more. Artists have gone with us into the Arctic, and I have heard them rave over the wonderful beauties of the scene, and I have seen them at work trying to reproduce some of it, with good results, but with nothing like the effect of the original. As Mr. Stokes said, it is color run riot. To the northward all is dark, and the brighter stars of the heavens are still visible, but growing fainter daily with the strengthening of the sunlight. When the sun finally gets above the horizon and swings his daily circle, the color effects grow less and less, but then the sky and cloud effects improve, and the shadows in the mountains and clefts of the ice show forth their beauty, cold, blues, and grays. The bare patches of the land, rich browns, and the whiteness of the snow is dazzling. At midday, the optical impression given by one's shadow is of about nine o'clock in the morning, this due to the altitude of the sun, always giving us long shadows. Above us the sky is blue and bright, bluer than the sky of the Mediterranean, and the clouds from the silky cirrus mare's tails to the fantastic and heavy cumulus are always objects of beauty. This is the description of fine weather. Almost any spot would have been a fine one to get a round of views from. At Cape Sheridan, our headquarters, we were bounded by a series of landmarks that have become historical, to the north, Cape Hecla, the point of departure of the 1906 expedition, to the west, 
Cape Joseph Henry, and beyond, the twin peaks of Cape Columbia rear their giant summits out to the ocean. From Cape Columbia the expedition was now to leave the land and sledge over the ice-covered ocean four hundred and thirteen miles north to the Pole. End of chapter 8